You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole, St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. If you have your Bible or your Bible app, will you grab that and go with me to the book of Ephesians? And we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2 this morning, Ephesians chapter 2. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love to give you one. You'll find stacks of Bibles on those tables in the back of the room. Take one now. That's our gift to you. And if you don't know your way around the Bible that well, all the verses we'll be studying today will be on the screen so you can follow along with us. If you're willing and able, will you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word? All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for His people. So listen carefully to these words recorded for us in Ephesians 2, verses 11 to 22. Therefore... Remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we, have, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. We're continuing in this series looking at the book of Ephesians. Ephesians, uh, the purpose of Ephesians is identity formation. It's really what the whole letter is about, identity formation. Uh, Thus far, we've learned that we cannot know ourselves without knowing God. We cannot know ourselves without knowing God. So to discover the, the real you, your true identity, you cannot begin by looking inward. You must look upward. In only one setting can we ask this question, who am I, and discover the true answer, and that's in the presence of the God who made us, our Creator. So we cannot know who we are until we know God, and that's where we've been in the previous three weeks. Now, knowing God and knowing ourselves, we're ready to know others. That is, to love others and to live peacefully with them. Division is a mark of every group, every community, every society, apart from the accomplished and applied work of Jesus. Jesus brings peace. 
peace between us and God and peace to our world. Or we could say it like this, the gospel, the gospel not only makes you a new creation, the gospel also creates a new kind of community. A new kind of community. Now, how does it do that? How does the work of Jesus create this new type of community? Well, I'm glad you've asked. I like when you're inquisitive like that. So let's explore the question together. In our passage this morning, the Apostle Paul is going to paint three portraits. We'll look at them one by one. Three portraits. The first portrait is a divided humanity. Utter, severe division. Divided humanity. Portrait two, the peacemaking Christ. How does he bring unity? And then third, final portrait, God's new society. So there's the three portraits for the day. Divided humanity, the peacemaking Christ, God's new society. First, a divided humanity. Look more carefully with me at the opening verses of this passage, verses 11 and 12. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, this passage begins in a very similar fashion to the passage that we looked at last week, Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. And there, there was a huge comparison, if you'll recall, life then, then being in our pre-conversion condition before we met Jesus Christ, then and then life now. And we're going to see that same sort of uh, comparison in this passage today, but now the focus is going to be on Jew-Gentile relationships. Now, we need to unpack those terms just a little bit because my guess is that most of us don't use these terms in everyday conversation jew gentile relationships right now in the context here gentiles is clearly being used in a derogatory way but we we probably don't we don't use that term right like if if somebody cuts you off in traffic you probably don't say you gentile (laughs) you gentile i don't know I, i don't want to know what you did say but it probably wasn't you gentile right So what is the passage all about? What is this Jewish-Gentile relationship thing? Think with me back to the Old Testament storyline. We really got to go all the way back to the beginning to understand what's happening here. In the beginning, God created Adam and Eve. Humanity lived in perfect communion, peace with God, peace with each other, peace with all of creation. But then... They succumbed to temptation. And because of that, the peace became enmity. The fellowship became separation. But God, in His love and in His grace, He refused to just abandon His creation. He refused to give up on mankind. So He set His gracious gaze on a man named Abraham. You remember Abraham from the book of Genesis? Sets his gracious gaze on Abraham and establishes a covenant with Abraham. We see that word in our passage here. The Gentiles were strangers to the covenants. Abraham is the one God chose. Now, Here's the way it works, though. God never chose Abraham just to choose Abraham. 
God made a covenant with him, and a covenant is a deeply personal, a deeply serious promise. In other words, God breaks into Abraham's life, breaks through the division, the separation, comes to Abraham and promises himself, his own faithfulness, his own provision. And that took three forms. God promised to Abraham that he would be the father of a great nation. We know that becomes the nation of Israel. That they would inherit the promised land and, get this, that they would be a blessing to all nations. From the very beginning, God's plan was that he was choosing Abraham and Israel so that they would be a blessing to all nations. But really, the whole story of the Old Testament is a story of God's faithfulness to Israel despite Israel's stubbornness and unfaithfulness. They never do what God called them to do. And so the Old Testament is a story that does not have a happy ending. So when we come to the New Testament and we read letters like Ephesians, Paul writing here, at this time there was a fierce division between Jews and Gentiles, meaning anyone who's not a Jew. A fierce division because what had happened over the course of the years, the centuries, is that Israel had taken God's election of them and his worldwide mission and they had transformed that into favoritism and division. We are God's people. Us, not you. Fierce division. One commentator puts it like this. This will help you get the picture. The Jew had an immense contempt for the Gentile. The Gentiles, said the Jews, were created by God to be fuel for the fires of hell. God, they said, loves only Israel of all the nations that he had made. It was not even lawful to render help to a Gentile mother in her hour of sorest need, for that would simply be to bring another Gentile into the world. The barrier between these groups was absolute. If a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl, or if a Jewish girl married a Gentile boy, the funeral of that Jewish boy or girl was carried out. Such contact with a Gentile was the equivalent of death. It's hard for us to imagine a division this fierce. And that's what Paul is dealing with here at the beginning of this passage. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise. But the good news of this passage is that Jesus destroys even the fiercest divisions. With Jesus, there is no discrimination. He conquers it. There is no hate He is the peacemaking Christ. That's the second portrait of the passage. Verse 13. But now, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We saw a very similar move earlier in chapter 2, back around verse 4. But now in Christ. In other words, this is the transition. Then and now. That's the comparison, remember? 
Earlier in the chapter, it was then before we knew Jesus and now we have been raised with him, seated with him in the heavenly places. Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, you Gentiles, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. The blood that binds us, Jesus' blood, that blood is more precious and more powerful than the blood the language, the culture, the political persuasion, the preferences that may set us apart. Jesus' blood is more powerful. And verse 13 really is a heading, a summary, if you will, of all that Paul is going to develop in this middle part of the passage. How is it that Jesus' blood brings unity? Well, look at what he says here. For he himself, Jesus himself, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. How is it that Jesus brings peace? Paul highlights two actions in particular. The first is that Jesus breaks down this old wall, an old wall of hostility, And he does so specifically by abolishing the law. Now, what does that mean? The law was like a giant privacy fence that separated Jews and Gentiles. Giant privacy fence. Think about it. Jews observe the law. Circumcision, animal sacrifices, dietary laws. Gentiles didn't do those things. So the law created a barrier between them. But now that Jesus has come in his flesh, meaning in his body that died, Jesus has smashed, like the Hulk, this wall. He's just broken it down. The dividing wall, the privacy fence is no longer there. Take the Old Testament sacrifices as an example. The animal sacrifices. If we're honest, most of us probably don't really have a good understanding of the animal sacrifices, right? Sort of freaky, might even frighten us a little bit. I mean, when was the last time you went over to your neighbor's house to borrow the pressure washer and saw him sacrificing some livestock, right? I mean, if that has happened to you, you you might need to consider a new neighborhood. we got some realtors in the church, they'll help you out. It's a totally foreign concept to us, right? But here's what I want you to understand about these sacrifices. The Old Testament sacrificial system was pretty complex, but at the core, it's very simple. The blood sacrifices all had the same basic ritual. It started with a worshiper, that's you. And the worshiper took the animal, placed his hand on the head of the animal, and then killed the animal. This wasn't magic, nor was it meaningless. It was a symbolic transferal of the sins of the worshiper to the animal, symbolic. And then the animal was then killed in the place of the worshiper. So the idea is, I am a sinner, and if I am going to live, then something must die in my place. That's the seriousness of my sin. But these Old Testament sacrifices, you got to hear this, these Old Testament sacrifices had no saving power. They had no saving power They were simply pointing out the way of salvation, pointing to something greater. 
They had no saving power, but they did have a separating power. Right? It's the Jews who were doing those sacrifices. Gentiles aren't doing that. So they had no saving power, but they had a separating power. Now that Jesus has come, he is the sacrifice that all of the Old Testament sacrificial system was pointing to. His sacrifice in his flesh, in his body that dies, it does have saving power. It does have saving power and it doesn't separate. The wall has been destroyed, meaning whoever you are, whatever your ethnicity, whatever your culture or background, we all must come to God in the same way, through faith in Jesus. See, the cross is the great equalizer. We meet one another at the foot of the cross. Jesus has broken down this old wall. But Paul goes a step farther. He says next that not only has Jesus broken down the old wall, he's also created a new type of humanity. That he, Jesus, might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. This is how strong the unity is that Christ has created. It's one new humanity. One new way of existence. We are reconciled to God and we are reconciled to each other through the cross of Jesus. His blood spilled for us. And it is Jesus who kills the hostility. So get this. The one who was slain is the slayer of hostility. Of all division. This is how he brings peace. Now, what I want us to see in the final portrait of the passage is that that unity that Jesus has created, we are called to maintain. Look with me at this final portrait. God's new society. I want to just read this quickly. So then, everything is different now because of the cross. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple, a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So in this third portrait, we really have three mini pictures here. A kingdom, a family, and a temple. And much could be said about each one of those images, but I want to focus on the larger picture here that we are now God's new society, no longer a divided humanity because of what Jesus has done. We are now a new society, a new way of existing, characterized by God's rule, God's love, and God's presence within us, and that changes everything. But notice here that this is a theological reality. It is something that is done. It has been accomplished. Now we as the church are called to live it out, or in the language of Ephesians, to maintain the unity that Christ has created. 
We'll come to this later in this study when we get to chapter 4. But I want to read it in passing now, just so you can know what's on the horizon. In Ephesians 4, 1-3, Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity, to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So you see, this unity that Christ has created, it's real. It's accomplished. And we are called to live it out to maintain it. Now in chapters 4 and 6, Paul will warn us that the forces of darkness will seek to attack the unity of God's people. This is the devil's strategy. It is to divide and conquer. That's how he works. It's the only hope he has because the Holy Spirit who lives within us is more powerful than the prince of the air, more powerful than the ruler of this world. That's the devil. So the one within us is stronger. That means the only hope he has is divide and conquer, turn us against each other. The devil wants to divide your marriage. He wants to divide your family. He wants to divide your godly friendships. He wants to divide every gospel-centered congregation like this one. So we must be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And the way we do that is by developing and applying a theology of embrace. If you'll give me seven or eight more minutes of your time, I want to share with you something that I think will be very, very helpful for all of us, though it might make us uncomfortable along the way. That phrase, a theology of embrace, it comes from a man named Miroslav Volf. Volf is a professor at Yale Divinity School. Many years ago, he wrote a really, really important work called Exclusion and Embrace. Exclusion and Embrace. And in this book, what he does is he develops a theology of embrace. In one chapter at the heart of the book, titled simply Embrace, he builds his basic argument, and his thesis goes something like this. God's reception of hostile humanity, that's us, God's reception of hostile humanity is a model for how human beings should relate to the other. And the other is that group or that person, whoever it is, we consider to be an enemy. That group or that person we are at odds with. Now, Wolf begins with a question. I bet it's a question that you either are asking now or at least at some point in your life you've asked it. Here's the question. He says, how do we find the strength to forgive? Well, that's real, isn't it? How do we find the strength to forgive? Should we try to persuade ourselves that forgiveness is invariably good for mental and spiritual health, whereas vindictiveness is bad? Should we tell ourselves that given the nature of our world, it's wiser to forgive than to fall prey to the spinning spiral of revenge? 
even if valid, will these arguments get at such a powerful emotion as the desire for revenge? How will we satisfy our thirst for justice and calm our passion for revenge so as to practice forgiveness? The answer, Wolf says, is to place both our enemies and ourselves face-to-face with God. The God who loves and the God who does justice. He continues, listen to this. Hidden in the dark chambers of our hearts, nourished by the system of darkness, hate grows and seeks to infest everything with its hellish will to exclusion. In the light of the justice and love of God, however, hate recedes and the seed is planted for the miracle of forgiveness. Forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans, even as I excuse myself from the community of sinners. Now, did you hear that? Did you hear what Wolf is saying there? He's saying that when we refuse to forgive, when our hearts are unforgiving, it is because we are treating our enemy as some subhuman monster, while at the same time treating ourselves as someone that should be excluded from the community of sinners. In other words, there's only one reason that we fail to forgive. And that is because deep somewhere in our hearts, we have this belief, expressed or unexpressed, this belief that our enemies, they, they don't deserve the cross. And we don't really need it. So we must, he says, we must place both our enemies and ourselves face to face before God. The cross is the great equalizer. No one can be in the presence of the God of the crucified Messiah for long, he says, without overcoming this double exclusion, without transposing the enemy from the sphere of monstrous inhumanity into the sphere of shared humanity. And ourselves from the sphere of proud innocence into the sphere of common sinfulness. As we meditate on the gospel, we come to see that we are our enemies. And they are us. We are all brought to the same level at the foot of the cross. Forgiveness, Wolf says, is the boundary between exclusion and embrace. So here's what I want to do as we wrap up. I want us to think about this picture Embrace, this word picture, embrace. Wolf says there's four parts to it, four motions we must take. What does it mean to embrace someone? Act one, opening the arms, a gesture, the body reaching for the other, a statement. I don't want to be just myself. I want reconciliation, communion with you. 
an invitation, like a door left open for a friend. No question on the part of the other whether he or she can come in. Act two, waiting. The open arms reach out, but they stop before touching the other. The arms wait. It's a risky endeavor. I open my arms, make a movement of the self toward the other, not knowing, not knowing whether I will be misunderstood, attacked, or reciprocated. Embrace is grace, and grace is a gamble, always. Act three, closing the arms. This is the embrace proper. Each person, think about it, each person is both holding and being held. Both active and passive. It takes two pairs of arms for one embrace. And act four, opening the arms again. Life moves forward. Life together moves forward. The end of an embrace, he says, in a sense, is simply the beginning of future embraces. A theology of embrace. So, who do you need to embrace? Christ has created unity. It is real. Our calling as his society, as his church, is to maintain the unity that he so graciously has created for us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your blood. Thank you for the unity it brings. Lord, you have reconciled all of us who believe in you. You have reconciled us to our Creator, and you have reconciled us to each other. So now, show us. Show us who we need to embrace.